Before we get started here this morning, we're going to have a word of prayer and then we'll launch into our our lesson this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for your great love. Thank you that you are such a big God. Thank you that you do desire to be lifted up, lifted up by the things that we say, the songs that we sing, lifted up by the way that we even go about living our life. Pray that we would see that when we're leaning into you or we're staying near to you or depending on you or staying connected to the vine, we're walking by means of your spirit working inside of us, we're allowing you to lead and direct. In our lives, we have a posture of dependence on you that while that is true, you're gonna undertake to work in our lives to make our lives count in time and in eternity. Pray that we would have that posture or that mindset that says, I can't do this without you. I need to stay connected to you. In fact, to recognize that that was the very purpose for my being, the very purpose for my having even been created is to rightly relate to you as made possible through the work of your son. Pray that we would want to tell the story of Jesus and his love as we go about our day and we would want to shine the light of Jesus into the darkness of the places and spaces that you direct us. Pray that we would have attitudes that see even the ministry of the local church as being twofold, that we would be striving together for the furtherance of the gospel but also that we would be ministering to one another in love. Pray that we would see even an event like the Christmas program as fulfilling both of those missions, that we would see that this is an opportunity to shine that light into the darkness so that people could respond to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Pray that it it would be done clearly, that it would be done accurately, that you draw people to even that program here tonight with soft hearts that are open, that maybe that could be the day of salvation for them that they could be born into your family and they could experience now a life that is forever changed. Pray that we would see how blessed we are, that we would go about our days just even having that mindset that says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. There's 10,000 reasons that I could praise you, I could bless you. Pray that I would just be living in light of that, that I could see what you've done for me and I would allow you to even accomplish your purposes in my life. Pray that you'd give me wisdom as I speak this morning as we look at even a little part of the Christmas story about the birth of Christ and some of the significance about it. Pray that you'd allow for that to be accurate and true and clear and useful to those that are here. Pray for the Sunday school teachers, that you'd give them wisdom as they speak so that what is said would be useful to the young people, that you'd open the hearts of everybody who's here, that we would come here with a posture or a mindset even that says, I want to celebrate who Jesus is. I want to grow in my faith. I want to be an encouragement to others. I want to come here to build up. I'm going to come here with a mentality that wants to build up the body of Christ so that we can be effective in our outreach for you. Thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. I feel kind of exposed. All right, well, it's good, good for me. need to just trust the Lord even with all you staring at my whole body. Like, I'm not hidden in any way. It's a good thing I let go of that Coca-Cola. I dropped a couple of pounds. All right. Well, the title of this morning's sermon is Love Incarnate. Love Incarnate. Now, incarnate means embodied in flesh or human form. So some of you maybe have heard the word incarnate or incarnation as as it relates to the birth of Jesus Christ. But the word itself, again, means embodied in flesh or human form. The incarnation of Jesus, then, it refers to his taking on or becoming embodied in human form. So if you 
It's kind of another one of those fancy sort of theological words that isn't common to our culture even today to use a word like this, but it means, it speaks of this action where Jesus took on human form, or he became embodied in human form. And Jesus doing this is one, it represents one of the most spectacular events in history. God became man. God became man. Now, if you really have any understanding or appreciation for the eternal nature of God or the the qualities and characteristics of God, and you recognize that he's ever existed, he's forever existed, he's eternal, he has no beginning, he has no end, that he's all places at once, that he's all-knowing, that he's all-powerful, that he never changes, that he's truth, that veracity, that he's a just God, that he's a fair God, that he's a loving God, that he's a perfectly righteous God, that he's a holy God. As you're thinking about these characteristics of God, the idea that God, now do any of those characteristics describe human beings? And the answer is no, not at all. And and in a sense, I will share this with you. Growing up, I think, I was taught a lot about God. And we had charts or circles that would have, well, usually it was a triangle with God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then, you know, right God in the middle of that. And then around the outer edge of that, you would have a circle of the many different qualities or characteristics of God. And uh, raise your hand if you, some of you went to Sunday school here, raise your hand if you ever learned any of that. Okay? So a number of you learned those things coming even to this very church. Maybe some of you learned them elsewhere. Uh, Maybe you learned them as an adult through even teaching over the pulpit in this church or, or another church. And so as, as we learned, though, what happened with me is as I, I learned about the qualities of God, though I never had a moment in my life, and this may not be true of your story, I'm just sharing my story, I never had a moment really in my life that I can even think of where I doubted whether God was real or that God existed. There wasn't any time in my life where I wondered whether Jesus had died on the cross for my sins. As far as I'm concerned, it's the only thing I had ever heard and I never doubted it. I never questioned it. I wasn't, I didn't approach it that way. Now, some people did, and that's your story. That's why it's your faith story. But my faith story is from two or three years old. I'm being told about my sin and about God's remedy for my sinfulness through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, and that it was motivated by God's great love for me, and that I need to do nothing other than just accept that what is being told to me, what I'm learning about God and his sacrifice for me and my sinfulness, that that was true, and that if I would believe that that was true or trust in that, I would be God's child. I would be saved, saved from a hell that I deserve to a heaven I didn't. And, and so the gospel was childlike in a sense. My response to it was childlike, but it was like my response to many things. I had loving adults in my life. You were some of them. It, it was some of you who were telling me these things. Okay, and you hadn't let me down as far as I knew. You hadn't been regularly lying to me about things so far as I knew. My parents were loving, trustworthy, reliable kind of people, so far as I knew. And so as they taught me these things, what possible basis did I have for thinking they were lies? At a minimum, I would have had to accept that what they were saying was true, whether I would put my own trust in it. I would accept it for myself. I would receive it in a sense of internalizing and and making it real to me. That may be a separate story, but I'd have no basis whatsoever to believe any of that was not true. 
You say, well, why are you, why are you sharing this with us? Well, because as I grew then, I learned more and more about the Lord. I believed I was God's child from a young age. How young? I can't say because I can't remember a single moment in my life where I didn't accept that those things were true. And so is it possible to be forever, you know, having always been saved? And the answer is no. Is it possible to be saved on account of your parents' faith? No. God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. At some point, did did God determine, which none of us would know the answer to, that I understood this in a personal enough way that I would be then found to be, I guess, accountable to have made that choice? And many people have different opinions about that. Yes, and we'll leave that in God's hands, right? Because to this day, that has perpetually been the case in my life. But as I was growing, that took some time. (laughs) Back to the circle of attributes. I was learning more and more about God. And as I learned more and more about God, I learned all these qualities about him. And the more I learned about him, the more distant he he became to me. Because I found that I couldn't relate to any of those qualities. None of those things were true about me. It just made him harder to be close to, in a sense, or get my arms around. Did I doubt that he existed? No. Did I trust in him? Yes. Did I ever, was I ever shaken in my faith? No. Did I talk to him regularly? Yes. Did I read his word? Yes. Did I learn a lot more about him? Yes. Did I tell people about him? Yes. Was I convinced that they needed to hear about Jesus and his love? Yes. From a young age, I had a, a heart that was soft towards the plight of those who did not know Jesus Christ. I had a heart that saw the problem with not telling my friends or people I came into contact with about the light that was in me. I regularly told them about Jesus and his love, but I didn't feel that close, in a sense, to God. And you'll say, well, that's because it's not a feeling. But it's more than that. It's more that the more I learned about him, the less relatable God was to me. Don't know if that's making sense. So as we're thinking about God and this idea that why would this be such a spectacular event that God would actually become man? And why would, if God is love, and the Bible says that that's true, God equals love. And if God became man, took on or embodied human form, then as you're thinking about God is love, then love took on a human form when Jesus Christ was born. And that's really what I want to talk about. We can't even really fathom the creator becoming fully man while remaining fully God. But believing this fact is actually central to the gospel message itself. You see, the incarnation of Jesus represented the ultimate demonstration of God's love. And that's where this title comes from, Love Incarnate. If God became man, then love became man because God is love. Just like light became man because God is light and in him is No darkness at all. And so as you're thinking about these concepts, God became more personal. He became more reachable and relatable through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The incarnation of Jesus Christ could rightfully be seen as love embodied because the love of God, Jesus being a representative of the entire triune Godhead, that love took on human form in the form of Jesus Christ And then it was acted upon. God demonstrated then that love by dying for you and I. So as we think about love embodied or love incarnate, let's take a little bit closer look this morning at at Jesus Christ's incarnation. Now, again, incarnation, Jesus Christ coming to earth in human form. That occurred. 
You cannot truly celebrate Christ's birth without understanding how foundational the incarnation of Jesus is to the redemptive plan of God. It's foundational. It's not something we can just skip across. As you're thinking about looking at your bulletin, Jesus being the reason for the season, what is wrapped up in that? Are, are you considering that as you sit here this morning? What does that really mean? What is the real focus of that? Well, it starts with the eternal plan that accounted for or determined to have God become man as Jesus Christ took on human form. Now, a couple of important or relevant truths that you have to keep in mind as we think about the incarnation of Jesus. The first part of that is that Jesus was eternally fully God. And this has caused many, many people to remain lost because there's no way to be uh, put your faith in Jesus Christ and, be, and him being the savior of the world if you don't believe that he was God in human form. If you don't believe that he was God, I guess it starts with that, and then that he took on human form. But many people deny that Jesus is God, that he was not just sent from God, but that he was God, become man. They don't accept that. And you can think of various sects. The Mormons would take that approach. Some, I think the Jehovah's Witnesses largely take that approach as well. If you think about others, there's plenty that, I guess, give lip service to the idea that Jesus was God and that he was the savior of the world without putting their faith in him. So that's sort of a different category. But Jesus was eternally fully God. Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to John chapter one. We're not gonna have a PowerPoint for this this morning. We're gonna do page turning. Jesus was eternally fully God. And there's several places we could have gone, but for the sake of time, we're going to stick here with John because there's several passages we're going to look at in the book of John. John 1.1. 1, 1. Now, many of you have this memorized. This is one of the verses that I was taught. Something that a human mind cannot wrap itself around. The concept of eternity is foreign to our capacity for understanding, but yet we accept some things as true without fully understanding them. And do you realize that that's a critical component to faith? When we say we walk by faith and not by sight, it, it involves not fully seeing, not fully understanding, but still trusting anyway. That's the trick. You're not really trusting if it all makes perfect sense to you, right? It's trusting in something that doesn't at times make sense. That's faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen in any event, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. The Greek word there is logos for the word, the word word. <laughs> but it's a reference to Jesus Christ. So in the beginning was Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ was with God and Jesus Christ was God. This is foundational truth, friends. This is tied up in even our understanding of the incarnation, this idea that he was fully God or God become man. Now, in the beginning does not refer to a particular moment of time, 
but it assumes a timeless eternity as you're thinking about in the beginning. The ever-existent one, God was ever-existing, and as a part of the triune Godhead, so was Jesus Christ. We move on, though. Jesus was eternally fully God, but Jesus became fully man through his incarnation. Now, as we're thinking about these important truths, this is the second one, that Jesus became fully man through his incarnation. Look a little bit further in John chapter 1 to verse 14. Verse 14. See, the Bible's either completely true or it's completely false. You would have no ability to pick which parts of the Bible are true and which parts of the Bible are false and have any confidence in its reliability. You'd say, how could I trust any of it if some of it's not true? The tr- it's all true. And here's a one famous reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. John 1:14. Now, I'm just going to read here the first part of the verse. And the word... Jesus Christ, we have already determined that's what that's a reference to. The word what? Became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We'll handle the rest of that verse a little bit later. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became man. Jesus Christ embodied or took on human form. And as you think about that phrase even, dwelt among us, there's, that's, it's really a word for tabernacle. It's, it's translated other places, tabernacle. But it really means that Jesus Christ tabernacled among us, or more simply it means Jesus Christ pitched his tent or took up residence among us. He came to live among us. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. I'll show you another idea of this God with us. God became man. This is, this is beyond our, our scope to fully understand But yet, these are the truths declared by God's word that we accept because they come from God himself, a reliable, trustworthy source. Matthew 1, 23. This is a pretty common Christmas verse too. It says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, who's that, Mary, and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated what? God with us. God among us. God pitched his tent among us in the form of Jesus Christ's incarnation. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He was living with us. And then the third thing that we need to look at just as far as introductory truths is that Jesus took on human form voluntarily as part of the eternal plan. We ought not to forget that. Jesus was eternally fully God. Jesus became fully man through his incarnation, and Jesus did so or took on human form voluntarily. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Sorry if you didn't uh, bring a Bible with you this morning. Normally I do put these up on the screen, but this is useful to us, getting our hands into the pages of Scripture. No, I'm not, because I tried to put my Bible up here earlier, and it collapsed the stand, so I have it written in my notes, but Philippians chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 5. Jesus took on human form voluntarily. Let this mind, allow this mind to be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but 
catch this, made himself, made himself of no reputation. How did he do that? He took on taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. This was voluntary. And being found in the appearance of man, what did he then do? It was humbling enough to take on the form of a man when you were the eternal God, but he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So sometimes you might see that. You you might hear people even say, God loves you this much. Now that's the idea. How did God demonstrate that love? By being obedient to a death on the cross because he wanted to rescue you from the predicament you were in. So do you ever say that to your kids? I hope you do. I hope you say, I love you this much. I used to tell my kids that all the time. We'd come up with creative different ways to say you. I love you to the moon and back. And then to one-up them, and you'd have to say, and then back again and back another time. (laughs) We used to have fun times with that when they were little. Now they don't love me, so we don't deal with that anymore. (laughs) I, I tease. They, they mainly love me. Uh, when they need something, they love me more. <laughs> but these truths are essential to the gospel message. Now, there there's really is no salvation without this understanding. And you say, well, how could this be so critical? Well, it speaks to the person of Jesus Christ by explaining his humanity and explaining his deity. Turn to 1 John chapter 4, and I'll show you this. You can't believe in the work of Jesus Christ without believing that he's fully God and that he was fully man. That Jesus was who he said he was. Now, that'd be be reason enough to say that you have to believe this if you're going to understand or believe the gospel. And why is that? Because Jesus said this was true. So if you're not going to believe Jesus about this, how are you going to believe that he was the satisfactory payment, the one and only, the final lamb who would die and shed his blood in the place of sinners like yourself and like me? He said that this was true about himself. Now there were those in his day who didn't believe it. They believed many of the things that Jesus said, but they did not believe that he was fully God who had become man, that he had, God came to earth to die for sinners. They didn't believe that part, or not fully. First John chapter four, verse two. By this you know the spirit of God. If God's spirit was directing and working in a person, they would have this understanding. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Confessing means to acknowledge. Everyone that, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, meaning there's truth behind that person. But every spirit that does not confess or acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Now why was he having to say that? Because they were facing false teachers who were proclaiming that Jesus Christ never really came, that the, the Savior or the Messiah never really came. Many people accepted those lies. So it's central to the gospel. Jesus said that he, was the son, that he was the son of God, that he was God himself. He said that. They tried to stone him for that several times. And he said that he was, he acknowledged that he was fully, fully man at the same time. Now, we'll touch on a little bit more the implications of why that's such critical truth 
in, in a bit later, but let's move on to this. Now, what did residing or pitching his tent among us, what did that entail? What did that entail? Now, this is just some, in some ways a review of some aspects of the Christmas story, but let's move through it. It, it entailed a supernatural conception. That was one part of this. Jesus Christ residing among us involved a supernatural conception. Matthew 1.18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, meaning before they had relations, before that occurred, she was found with child of or by means of the Holy Spirit. So we had a supernatural conception. As Mary was Jesus Christ's natural mother, but God was the source of, of that birth. God was the father. Now you move on to a natural human birth. So there was a supernatural conception, but it also entailed Jesus residing among us. It, entail, it entailed a natural human birth. Turn to Luke chapter 2. Some people sort of miss that part. And, and friends, by the way, there's no such thing as immaculate conception. It's supernatural conception, but it's not immaculate conception, which refers to the idea that Mary was sinless, which is absolutely not true. She was a human being who needed a savior, and just like you and I. Luke 2, 6 so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, or cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in an inn. Jesus was actually born. She brought forth, talking about a natural birth. Jesus was born. Now, what else did residing among us entail? Well, it, it, entail, it, in, it was comprised of 33 and a half, plus years of life lived fully among us. Now, there's not even exact agreement about how many years Jesus was on earth. My take on it is somewhere in excess of 33 years. 30 of those years, though, were lived in relative obscurity. So as you're thinking about Christ residing among us, well, before we get to the significance of that, what did that look like? Well, it looked pretty normal. It looked like a pretty normal life. 30 of the 33 plus years was Jesus having a normal community, a normal job, a, a fairly normal childhood, a fairly normal family situation? And let's go through a few of these. See, Jesus didn't begin his public ministry until he was 30 years old. He seems to, again, have had this relatively normal childhood. There's only one verse about life after returning to Nazareth from, from Egypt. Now, that was when Jesus was maybe approximately two years old, somewhere around there. But we're still in Luke, so look at Luke 2.40. This is the only verse that is really talking about his early childhood. Luke 2.40. It says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. That's what we have of young, young Jesus' life. Now, he worked as a carpenter, and he was known as such. As you think about what did his dwelling among us live, look like, it looked like, again, a pretty obscure and normal life. 
Mark 6, 3a says this. Now, this is later on in his life, but it's referring back to what his 30 years before public ministry looked like. And they say this, these are some of those that are doubting Jesus. They say, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, not the carpenter's son, but the carpenter? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, we know that Joseph was a carpenter, and naturally, Jesus, his oldest son, followed in his footsteps, as was very common in those days. Jesus was a carpenter. And so even little kids in our church sometimes, I recall them singing a song about the carpenter shop. I can't sing it because I don't know the full, anyone want to take a stab at it? (laughs) It's something like the carpenter shop, the carpenter shop with the bang, bang, bang and a... Okay, a few of you are doing it, but you're doing it you're doing it with a little bit of reservation. So I'm not really catching it from up here, but afterwards, maybe before the last song, we'll have you come up for a special. Everyone who knows that song will be up here. <clears throat> that was what it looked like. That, this is part of what Jesus Christ's time on earth looked like. Some of it was living life with a family, learning a trade, working with his hands, being raised in a town, being raised in a community. See, he was raised with siblings as well, and I assume most of you know that, but that same verse, Mark 6, 3, the back part of it, says this. So is this not the the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. They They were like, what makes him so special as he was talking and revealing things that nobody else understood or knew? And he was then starting to perform miracles. But he had siblings. He was raised with siblings. They probably picked on him. They probably annoyed him. See, he never sinned. But to be annoyed, depending on how you react to that, you know, that's not sin. But were his siblings, his younger siblings, were they hanging on his neck? Were they wrestling with him? Were they causing him problems? Yeah. You know, were they driving along in the, no. But were they traveling and doing things where stop touching me was going on? I think sometimes we don't understand the full significance of what it meant to be fully man and yet be fully God. And we don't do that. We're not considering these things in an irreverent way. We're seeing it in a different way where we sort of skip across this part. The bulk of his life, 30 of the 33 years, were spent in this this context. Another one of them that we should consider is in that 30 years, he was raised as, as an observant Jew following the requirements of the law. If you're still in Luke... Verse, chapter 2, verse 40, just go to the next verse. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. That's just one indication of the fact that Jesus was raised as an observant Jew. He was brought to the temple on the proper days. He was, he was circumcised. He was baptized he, by John the, Bapti- John the Baptist. That's later in his life at the beginning of his public ministry. But Jesus had a pretty, a pretty normal, in a sense, bulk to his life. Now this verse, as we think about him going to Jerusalem, it provides the context for the only other reference to his childhood. Two references to his childhood. 
One, that he grew and became strong in spirit and filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Second one, look at Luke 2.42. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. The feast of what? The feast of the Passover. Passover feast. Turn to verse 49. And he said to them, because remember he was left behind. Not intentionally, we're traveling as a large group, a community group. Jesus is found to be missing after they had already left town. Where was he? Still in the temple, right? He's teaching things to people who are just wowed by what he is able to teach. Okay, but they said to him when his parents, Mary and Joseph, and he did treat Joseph like a father. Uh, There's some conversation even about that later in this passage. But he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. That's the only other passage there is about Jesus prior to 30 years of age. Now we talk about what did residing among us entail. It, entail, it, it also entailed three years of public ministry. So 30 years of what we'll call relative obscurity. And then we're going to talk about three years of public ministry. Now, this started again when he was 30 years old. You see that in Luke chapter 3. If you want to turn to the next chapter, verse 23. It says that this occurred when he was 30 years old. This is where you really see Jesus living life with people. Not because he hadn't been before. That's what I hope we don't miss this morning. He had been before. We just don't hear anything about it. It would probably be pretty fascinating, right? To hear how similar his experiences were for those first 30 years of life. Uh, Thinking about being an apprentice to his father as a carpenter. Some of you are thinking, I can't really relate to God. Well, can you relate to the idea that probably starting when he was 10 years old, for 20 years, he was working as a carpenter? He was going to work every day, getting sweaty, Hitting his thumb with the hammer? Having customers complaining about the work? Maybe trying to work with his brothers too? Having conflict come up? That kind of normal thing that you deal with? Jesus dealt with that. He, he lived that. And we just kind of forget about that. All the family problems that you're having, the sibling problems, the parent problems, the cousins and brother problems. Jesus lived that. Now, it's not talked about, but he, he lived that. And so can he relate to what you're going through when you're talking to him? When, when, when you're praying and talking to God, is he able to relate to what it is that you're going through? Now, we're going to see a verse about that in Hebrews a little bit later in a couple of minutes here, but we can't forget that. But as we're thinking about this life of living, Jesus really living life with people, it's only because it's recorded here, not that it just started here in the last three years of his life. Now, Jesus authenticated himself during this time as the Messiah through many miracles. Now, there was probably, you could probably break it up differently, but I have it broken up, power over the natural realm and then power over the spiritual realm. He wanted to demonstrate that he truly was fully God while being fully Man, so as you think about miracles, power over the natural realm, maybe you can think about some of these miracles as I summarize them. He calmed storms. He calmed wind and waves, right? He was able to walk on water. He could turn water into wine. He was able to multiply 
food. He was able to cause nets to be filled with fish. And you could come up with probably more examples. As he exercised power over the spiritual realm, you can think about how many times Jesus cast out demons. How Jesus was able to raise from the dead. That was both physical and spiritual in a sense there. So he directly ministered to people through the miracles. What did this living among us, dwelling among us entail? And it, it, it focused on him living with people. But he was doing that especially in these last three years of his life, three and a half or whatever it turns out to be, by ministering to people. Do you know that the majority of the, first of all, how many, how many miracles do you think Jesus performed? Do you, do you know the answer to that? I had never counted them, or if I did, I forgot. 37 are recorded. If, if that number's off, then I counted wrong, but 37. Now, the vast majority of them, though, involved him healing, involved him healing is there something to take away from that as we're thinking about the significance of Jesus Christ actually dwelling among us? We all needed to be what? Healed. We needed spiritual healing. How could he symbolize that through his life? By healing. And so as you're thinking about that, he caused lame, the lame to walk, the blind to see. Those that were diseased with leprosy, he cleansed them. You know, we had a disease that had permeated every pore of our bodies too, which was sin. It was like a cancer that was eating away at us and there was no hope. And Jesus came to resolve that problem, make us whole again in a sense, by taking all of that sinfulness away from us and clothing us in his righteousness instead so that we could be made right with God on the basis not of what we could do for God, but on the basis of what he had done for us. Even things like raising the dead and restoring, restoring even an ear that was cut off, right? Now, he also taught. So he directly ministered to people. He authenticated himself. He was living life with people. But he taught people in a way they had never heard before. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And there's several examples of this. Where people are saying, man, he's teaching things or he's saying things or explaining things that no one else could. Matthew seven twenty eight, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. It was something completely different than what they had ever seen before. Did man have every reason, every opportunity to respond to Jesus as the Savior of the world, to respond in faith to him as the one who could save? And the answer is yes. But unfortunately, many rejected him too. Now, as we think about the last point here in terms of what did residing among us entail, Jesus experienced the same things you experience with the, excep the exception of sin. And I already touched on this, but I'm now talking more about his experiences later in life here. He was persecuted. Have you faced some persecution? Maybe. I hope so. Because Jesus says that if you live for me, you'll suffer for my name's sake. Well, I don't have any 
suffering my life. Ask yourself, how bright am I reflect how brightly am I reflecting the light of Jesus into the places and spaces that God brings me? How much boldness have I had to be had to be known as Team Jesus, being on the side of Jesus, being on raising his royal banner, lifting his name high, putting the spotlight on him. How how willing have I been in that regard? And the truth is that people despise him. That's a fact. The world despises him. He says that. John, it's recorded in John several times, but John, they hated me first. They hate me, and because they hate me, they'll hate you. But they can only hate you vicariously due to their hatred of Jesus if they know that you are aligned with Jesus. Does that make sense? So as, as we're going through our day sort of secretly withholding or covering the idea that we are associated with Jesus, we face no pushback for that. But if we go through our days in a sense of wanting to be known as I'm associated with him, the truth is some people are going to persecute us. Some people are going to revile us. Some people are going to, we're going to have some suffering associated with that. Now, I still believe it'll be relatively mild in our day and age, but the time may be coming where that is greater. I'm not saying this is for everyone. There's a lot of ways to do this, right? How, how do I make it known that I'm associated with Jesus? Well, it starts by enjoying him yourself. As you're enjoying him and you're trusting him and you're depending on him, then what's happening? His spirit is able to work in and through your life so that you become a bigger and bigger reflection of him in the way that you're thinking, in the way that you're speaking, with the things that you're doing. Now, that can manifest itself in all different kinds of ways. Your life will be unique to you. It won't be my life, but a lot of different ways. In any event, we need to move, we need to move on. But what did he experience? Well, he experienced that persecution. He experienced being tempted. Is that something that you deal with, being tempted by sin from within and sin from without? He experienced being hungry, tired. He aged just like everyone else. There's every reason to believe he would have been sick, maybe suffered from seasonal allergies. There's nothing that would suggest that he didn't, as he was, remember, fully man and yet fully God. And so unless you think your seasonal allergies are brought about by your sinfulness, which I, don't, I wouldn't take that perspective, then you'd say it's just a natural part of living in a sin-cursed world. And Jesus faced the taintedness of the sin-cursed world. He had to deal with that too. You see, he also experienced the full range of human emotions. Some are recorded like the number one thing is compassion. The number one thing that is recorded that Jesus felt is compassion. You'll see it in many passages where he felt compassion for that person. Mercy or compassion, sometimes the same word. He felt compassion. How about anger? Several times where it's recorded that Jesus felt anger. How about sorrow? How about the shortest verse in the Bible? Well, what is that? Jesus wept, right? 
when, can, can he relate? Turn to Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. Can he relate to what you're going through? And the answer is yes. Hebrews 4.15 It says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, it's only referring to that one aspect of the human experience, temptation. But you could expand that based on principles that we know to be true in the passages from God's word, that it relates to everything that we've experienced, the human emotions that we feel, he can relate. He can sympathize with what you're going through. Now, we get to our last section here. What was the significance of Jesus Christ's incarnation? So as you look at this idea that Jesus Christ was incarnate, he came to earth in human form, fully God, but fully man. We've looked a bit at what did residing among us entail, but now let's look at the significance of Jesus Christ's incarnation. Now, there's a few things you could bring out. One is that the incarnation of Jesus was a fulfillment of prophecy. The earliest promise in the Bible is that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. And we, now, we know that Jesus was the fulfillment of that in Genesis 3.15 is where you could find that. Now there's other passages, even in Isaiah, that are talking about the fact that there would be a coming incarnation of Jesus Christ. Because if it was God's son, the Lord himself, who would give us a sign, Isaiah seven fourteen. therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I understand that in real time, this had an immediate near-term fulfillment or prophetic effect as it related to Ahaz, and the threat that they were facing from Israel and Syria. But that doesn't mean it wasn't prophetic or it didn't relate to a prophecy relating to Jesus Christ as well as many prophecies have both a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment or an ultimate fulfillment, which was here symbolized or it was, it was realized by the birth of Jesus Christ. You could say that as did this have in real time a meaning then? Yes, it was a sign. Ahaz didn't want a sign, but it was a sign that was given that God was with them, that there, there was no need for fear. And there was a specific sign given. There's at least three or four different views about what that actually meant and whether it was how it was actually fulfilled in real time. But looking forward as a messianic prophecy, it was definitely, there's no, this is too close to be said this is not a reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, a virgin birth. We have it right here. In Isaiah, how about Isaiah 9, 6 that says, For unto us a child is born. This idea that there would be a birth. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. How about Mighty God that God would become man. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, it was a direct fulfillment of prophecy. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then you could keep reading in verse 7. 
at least three places in the Old Testament that you can see reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But the incarnation of Jesus Christ represented more than just fulfillment of prophecy. The incarnation of Jesus Christ represented the only means by which man could really experience God in the most intimate, intimate and personal way possible. Now you think about that. Could man experience God intimately before Jesus came? The answer is yes. But in as personal a way as this, the answer is no. This was something different. It allowed man to experience and see God like never before. Turn back to John. We're going to be there for a couple of passages here. We do need to pick up the pace, so if you're not a fast page turner, maybe just listen. John chapter 1 again. It allowed man to experience and see God like never before. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him Jesus Christ was the manifestation of God in human form, allowing man to experience and see God in a completely different way, a way that was monumental in human history. It was the incarnation of Jesus that declared God among man, pitching his tent among us, God doing that in the form of Jesus Christ or through that aspect of the Trinity being fully God and fully man. Turn to John 1.14. You're just in the same section there, four verses back. Remember, we started out with the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But what was, the man, what was the rest of that? And we, as a result of that, we beheld his glory. It allowed us to experience and see God like never before. He declared him, Jesus declared God to man. We beheld the glory of God through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory. Now remember, God in his divine form cannot even be looked upon. When Moses is on Mount Sinai in Exodus thirty-three twenty. We read this, but he said, God speaking to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. God wasn't, people were not even in a, in a position to see any manifestation of God directly until we have the incarnation of Jesus Christ where God reveals himself through the person of Jesus Christ. His deity, in a sense, is set set apart or set aside to some extent, though he retained all of his deity, he's not utilizing the qualities associated with that. He's experiencing a fully human existence while being fully God, but setting aside those aspects of himself to, to a certain extent that's not fully known. You see, it allowed man to interact with, not, not, just, not just to see God, which we beheld him because of the incarnation, but it allowed man to interact with and handle God like never before. Remember I talked about, it's kind of becomes difficult to get your arms around, to wrap your arms around a God who seems so completely different than you and at times seems so 
far away. But not when you picture Jesus among us, pitching his tent among us, living with us. Now, I wasn't there for it. Would have been awesome if I was. But I can picture it. I can imagine God become man and living among us. As I'm thinking about talking to another person in human form, that's easy to do. So when I picture talking to God as picturing Jesus, the incarnate God, God become man, in a sense that makes it easier, doesn't it? And that's what they were able to experience. They not not only were able to see him, they were able to handle him like never before. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. This is the last book we'll turn to. I'll just read the rest. 1 John chapter 1, though. This is an amazing passage. John is a man who experienced life with Jesus in a way that you and I won't. This is a man who was able to lay against Jesus at the Last Supper. This is a man who is able to live life with Jesus in a way that you and I won't, but we can read about it and we can relate to God differently than we would have been able to were it not for the incarnation of Jesus Christ, but 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. What is he talking about? Jesus Christ. And our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Our hands have handled. He's talking about Jesus here. We've heard him. We've seen him. We've looked upon him. We've handled him with our hands. And the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. How? Through the incarnation of Jesus Christ who they were able to experience in a very personal and real way. And there are many examples of intimate interactions with the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, in human form that are recorded in the Gospels. Jesus lived life with, he lived life among people. He ate with them. He went to their homes. He slept with them. He traveled with them. He talked with them. He taught them. He healed them. Jesus was fully immersed in living life with man. And you see, as you're thinking about reasons why the incarnation of Jesus is significant, it's significant in that sense that we can, we were able now to really experience and relate to God in the most intimate and personal way possible. But another reason beyond being a fulfillment of prophecy and beyond now being able to relate to God in a different way, the last one, or actually the second to the last one here is the incarnation of Jesus provided a means by which Jesus could die as a sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. Now that's not an inconsequential reason, is it? So we're thinking about the significance of Jesus Christ's incarnation. The incarnation of Jesus provided a means by which Jesus could die as a sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. The idea is this, if Christ was never born, then he could never die. If he had never taken on birth in human form, he wouldn't be able to die. God can't die, he's eternally existent. But man die, mankind can die. We have a frailty to us. So if death is required to satisfy the debt of sins, then the redemption plan itself could be said to be hinged on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And you see some sense of that in Mark 10, 45, where it says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, to give up his life. 
This idea that Jesus didn't come with the understanding that he would die, certainly that's not true. He may have come to make a legitimate offer to the Jewish nation of a king is here, a king has come, but he knew how that would turn out. He, knowing that, didn't make that happen. He didn't violate free will and volition in doing so, but yet he knew it would happen. And so in his mind, he knew this isn't going to result in the earthly kingdom that was promised to the nation of Israel right now. It's going to be postponed. This is going to result in my death, burial, and resurrection for sinners. And that's why John the Baptist, seeing Jesus coming in his public ministry for the first time, could say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why he could say that. That's why Paul could say in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world for what purpose? To save sinners of whom I am chief. He came, he came to serve and give his life, friends. Now as you're thinking about our last reason for why there's significance to the incarnation. It's that the incarnation of Jesus represented God's love embodied in human form. God's love embodied in human form. That's where our title comes from, love incarnate, love embodied. Now, this is in 1 John. You should still be there. 1 John chapter 4. We see this, the embodiment of God's love is the incarnation of Jesus Christ in, in, in many ways because it was by that birth that we could have God in a human form, a sacrifice that would be, have a value to his death that would be greater than the debt that was owed by all man's sin. So only God himself could have a value to his life that would exceed the debt that was owed by all man's sins for all time. So it couldn't be anyone else in that sense. The value that was exchanged had to be proportionate. It had to be equal. And so the value of Jesus Christ's life exceeded the debt that was owed by all our sin. And so in that sense, if the only way that could occur was through the incarnation of God becoming man so that God could then die on Calvary for you and I, in a sense, there is no greater way to demonstrate love or to manifest love, or as you think about for love to become embodied than in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Now, what did that result in him doing? He loved us so much that he sent. How did he do that? Through the incarnate Jesus Christ. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins the satisfying payment for our sins and not for our sins only, but for all of the sins of the world. All who will let them come and drink freely of the water of life that's available. It's available to all. The question isn't, is salvation available? The question is, will you believe, accept, and put your trust in what Jesus Christ has done for you? So you think about the incarnation of Jesus. It refers to his being embodied in human form. But ultimately, the incarnation of Jesus represents the ultimate demonstration of God's love. The incarnation of Jesus can rightfully be seen as love incarnate or love embodied. And I hope that was encouraging here this morning. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you for even this Christmas program we're able to have this evening. Pray that it would be bring you honor and glory, that many people would be introduced, perhaps for the first time, to the message of hope, the message of 
salvation that's found in the person and work of your son, the person, though, being fully man and fully God. Pray that we would not forget that, that the person of Jesus Christ is embodied in his humanity and his deity and how he was willing to sacrifice himself in the place of sinners so that we could go free, that we could be made alive, that we could have access to a heaven we don't deserve and be saved from a hell we do. Pray that we would love to tell the story of Jesus and his love and that that would be told clearly and accurately and powerfully and impactfully 